Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome back to Politico Tech. Today's Monday, November 27th. I'm your host, Stephen Overly. Election watchers at the state and national level are warning that AI-generated deepfakes will disrupt the 2024 election cycle, that voters will be duped by political ads and online content, in which candidates are saying and doing things that appear to be real, but in fact are completely fabricated. But Matt Peralt and Scott Bobwer Brennan aren't so convinced. They're researchers at the University of North Carolina's Center on Technology Policy, and they see the growing calls for sweeping measures like banning or labeling political ads made with generative AI as overhyped. This is Matt. He's the director at the Technology Policy Center, though our paths first crossed during his time at Facebook, where he spent close to a decade in the company's D.C. office. We're trying to do a thing that I think is almost impossible, which is to make incremental policy solutions sexy. On the show today, Matt and Scott explain the misconceptions they see about deepfakes being used in political ads, as well as what incremental policies should be put in place to address the more pressing concerns. You just put out this recent report analyzing challenges around generative AI and political ads and sort of laying out policy recommendations for for how to address them. This is a topic being widely discussed, you know, certainly in Washington, but but well beyond as well. The concern, as you all see it, seems less to do with the potential for this to persuade voters, but rather affect their behavior. Things like their you know, political donations, turning out to vote. Scott, what is the distinction there? The goal for the piece was to understand and address the impact that generative AI would have on political ads. And to do that, we adopted a systematic approach, identify the potential harms, consider what existing empirical research says about those harms, and then identify policies that speak to those harms. What we found is that for some of those harms, things like scale, that generative AI is going to cause a massive increase in the amount of deceptive content or authenticity. It will create much more believable and impactful content. The literature seems to suggest that the harms have been overstated. While for others of those harms, in particular, the harms to down-ballot races and the harms related to how political ads can amplify biases, especially in the models themselves, I think have been quite underrepresented, underaddressed. So to get now to your question about the distinction between persuasion and behavior change, I think one of the things that the literature really points to is that political ads rarely have strong effects on persuasion. They rarely change the mind of a voter on who they should vote for. What they can do, though, is impact behaviors, turnout, fundraising, giving data, giving, you know, signing up for an email list. And so understanding that about political ads informs how we think about the potential harms of generative AI in political ads. Got it. So it's not so much an issue of influencing who people vote for, but maybe whether they vote at all or, or how engaged they get sort of in the, the campaign itself. 
You know, Matt, I did find it interesting that you all see this as a bigger problem with these down ballot elections, you know, and smaller elections where there's generally less money, but also sort of less advertising, less media attention. Why is that the bigger concern? As you said in your opening question and in your follow-up, we think it's less likely that misinformation or that political advertising is going to affect what people think and more what people do. So it's not likely, despite the focus on misinformation in presidential races, for instance, we think it's much less likely that it's going to affect Biden versus Trump, for instance, as opposed to city council races in places like Durham, North Carolina. There's much less attention on those local races, much less volume of content. We think it's more likely that you could potentially use generative AI to influence those elections in some way. We don't know if that's the case. We don't, we're not saying that generative AI is going to have a massive effect on city council races everywhere. But we do think that this doesn't receive sufficient attention and often sort of takes a back seat to the focus that's on federal races like the presidential election. And have you all seen, you know, any initial examples of this actually out there in the real world? I think when we talk about these AI deepfake concerns or, or the use of generative AI in political campaigns, we've had like a handful of high profile instances on the national level, at least. But it, it can be hard to differentiate sort of theoretical concerns from real concerns. There is one example that I have heard of. Now, I should preface this by saying I'm not a journalist. And so, you know, we are also very dependent on local journalists doing the work of covering these local races. But there was one example that was covered by national media, which is how I heard about it. It was the Chicago mayoral primary this past spring. This wasn't an ad, but right before the election was held, audio was released of one of the candidates saying some abhorrent things. And that candidate claimed that the audio had been generated. Not being an expert on Chicago politics, I certainly am not going to say that it was definitive in which way the election went, but that candidate did not win. I think, Stephen, one of the key things in your question is what's the right way for public policy to address potential harms in the future that are really incredibly uncertain? So the most important research that we could have potentially found would be research on the use of generative AI in political advertising. And the technology is just too nascent for there to be extensive research that exists right now on that. So the question then is, what do you do? Do you prohibit the use of the technology entirely? Do you do nothing and bury your head in the sand? And from our perspective, there are a whole bunch of things that you can do that don't just artificially constrain the technology while also protecting against some of the potential harms. And so that's the first set bucket of recommendations in the paper that focus on targeting electoral harms rather than technologies. We also don't think, even though the research right now points in a certain direction. We don't think the appropriate thing is to just bury our heads in the sand and not pay attention to the potential for new research to elucidate and illuminate what those harms might actually look like. And that's the the second bucket of recommendations that we have, which are really focused on using this period that we're in to learn more about how the technology functions, the harms that it introduces into the political process, and then to inform future public policy. Right. It it feels like 2024 in some ways we're like living in the laboratory of how this stuff is going to play out. I think if we have this conversation a year from now after the election, we'll probably have seen some examples and have even more fully formed thoughts on the impact that it has. And I do want to get into the policy recommendations that you all have laid out. One question, though, so much of the conversation right now with addressing deepfakes, you know, in particular, you know, AI generated deepfakes, 
is this idea of labeling them, you know, watermarking them, coming up with some sort of system of disclosure. And, you know, in the early days of this podcast, I talked to the head of Public Citizen, which is an advocacy group, and they're firm believers that if you label deep fakes, that you sort of eliminate their ability to dupe people. From reading your report, it doesn't seem that you all necessarily see it that way, that you don't necessarily see these sort of disclosures as a silver bullet. Matt, why is that the case? We think there are a bunch of reasons that it's likely not a silver bullet. I mean, again, the persuasive effect of information is not entirely clear. We don't think it's the case that all of a sudden that you would label something as a deep fake or as created with AI or as manipulated content. And then all of a sudden people would obviously believe that it's either necessarily true or necessarily false or necessarily problematic. There are a few bills out there that would propose these kinds of requirements to disclose information when generative AI or other technologies are used in advertising. Those bills haven't yet passed, but but maybe they will, who knows. But there are companies that have imposed these requirements. So Google has announced that it, it didn't have this requirement in the 2023 election, but it will in the 2024 election. Meta announced a similar policy saying that advertisers will be required to notify people when they digitally alter content. As we've said, it's unlikely to be a silver bullet. But going back to the term that you used, which I love, which is that this election will be a laboratory where we will hopefully be able to learn. That's certainly our hope. So I think there is this moment now where Google and and Meta have both introduced what is considered potentially a, a helpful policy intervention. And our hope would be that researchers may be working with the companies and sharing data so that researchers would have the data that they need to make these assessments, would be able to evaluate the efficacy of this technology, its effect on what people think, its effect on advertising. Does it actually slow advertising volume in ways that reduce expression? Does it have competitiveness dynamics? You know, it's Meta and Google are two large companies that are offering this. If there were smaller platforms who wanted to do the same or who were required to do the same, would those compliance costs end up being unduly burdensome for them relative to some of the larger companies? Those are a lot of open questions that we don't know the answers to. And our hope would be that we would study them. I actually am not, unfortunately, that optimistic that we necessarily will. Scott and I did a report on the ad blackouts in the 2020 election. And our hope was that when Facebook and Google had implemented these ad blackouts in 2020, that whether they were effective or not, there would be a volume of research that would study them that would enable us going into the 2022 and 2024 elections understand whether blacking out political advertising was impactful in a positive way and what are the ramifications of it. And we released a report coming up with our own assessments of that, but there hasn't been a high volume of that kind of research. And I think that's somewhat scary and unfortunate in that when we think about making these decisions going forward, advising the company in five years down the road or 10 years down the road, whether they should impose watermarks on digitally altered political advertising, we'd want to have that be a data-driven, research-informed decision. And I'm not necessarily confident that it will be. I was actually going to ask you about this, because as as you said, Meta and Google have both announced sort of these policies. Microsoft, I believe, has as well. I guess the question then, if you're not confident that it will work, is why would companies pursue this? Is it just sort of an obvious solution or a good sort of public gesture? Or is there a legitimate case to be made for at least trying this kind of approach? This is currently one of the main things that's being discussed in Congress. And so I think companies can show that they're responsive to what policymakers are suggesting might be best practices for companies. And that's a good thing for them to show that even in the absence of regulation, that they're listening closely to what policymakers think 
would be helpful interventions and addressing potential risk. I'm not sure, though, as we've been suggesting, that that is a movement that's motivated by clear evidence and data that suggests that this is the optimal outcome. There's an enormous amount that we don't know. And so a lot of my thoughts on this are based on intuition. My hope really would be that we move away from intuition-oriented public policy interventions, and we, down the road, are able to assess these proposals with much more information about how they function in practice. And, and I think that would mean researchers having a careful eye on their impacts in this election cycle. And I think that it's important that researchers partner with companies and figure out ways to obtain data that will help them to inform those questions. But I don't see company-driven research probably as the exclusive mechanism to have that result for a whole bunch of different reasons, but including that I think there would be questions that would best be directed at other platforms to understand more about the competitive dynamics, for instance, of these kinds of solutions. If I were to put my sort of cynical journalist hat on, it sounds like from that answer, it's more about public relations and government relations than necessarily evidence-based policy for for how to moderate their platforms and, and address these issues, which, as you said, maybe there's that evidence doesn't quite yet exist for the best. I think that that's right. But I just want to say, like, I think that's a thing. That is not a company exclusive issue. That is a thing in the ether generally. So many of right. the bills that have been introduced are proposing those sorts of things. And they're proposing them in the absence, I think, of clear evidence. We really try hard in our work. <laughs> We're trying to do a thing that I think is almost impossible, which is to make incremental policy solutions sexy. And they are just not sexy. It's way sexier to ban things or, you know, to come in with sort of definitive sweeping solutions than it is to do some of the kinds of things that we have recommended in various different reports that we've done. Like we've been very interested in the, in the concept of policy experimentation. It's not a sexy idea. It's way sexier just to pretend that you know with certainty exactly how different policy interventions would work. But the reality is that we don't. And so what we propose as an alternative is to try to be curious and to create policy experiments that will enable us to gather data so that down the road, we'll have smarter policy in the long run. Well, let me ask you then about one of the recommendations you make or observations you all have come to, which I thought was sexy enough, but uh, you can uh, you can uh, tell me what you think, which is, and Scott, I'll come to you for this. You know, the overall sort of suggestion is that policymakers should target issues like voter suppression, like bias in advertising, like, you know, poor digital literacy, but not really the technology itself. I guess my sort of fundamental question is why not regulate the technology? Sure. So, I mean, what is it that we care about? I mean, at the end of the day, we care about the harm that happens, right? We care more about voter suppression than about if that voter suppression was done through an AI model or if it was done through a hand-drawn leaflet or through Photoshop. I think that's the reason why it's more important to focus on those harms rather than particular technologies. We'll be right back. The Biden administration is moving forward with a slew of new regulations that put products like semiconductors, electric vehicles, modern healthcare technology, and clean energy at risk. Chemistry is essential to our modern lives, creating products to help foster a more sustainable and competitive future. The Biden administration must change its course and work with manufacturers on science-based policies that protect American innovation. Learn more at chemistrycreates.org. And we're back. 
Matt, there will be some critics of big tech especially, and and we hear from them often and regularly in recent years, but there will be critics who sort of say a decision not to regulate the technology lets tech companies off the hook, right? Or that it it gives them a pass for disinformation. Is that a fair criticism? So I just think it's orthogonal to what we focus on in our research. Our research isn't oriented on putting tech companies on the hook or letting them off the hook. The idea is, as a society, what are the things that we should be concerned about and how can public policy help us to address those concerns? I think Scott said it really well. We should care about voter suppression. And right now, there is no federal law prohibiting voter suppression, prohibiting the use of deceptive practices to suppress the vote. We think that that's problematic. We think that that's a thing that people should care about. If there were a federal criminal law that prohibited voter suppression, then sometimes companies would be on the hook because if companies engaged in complicity in voter suppression, they could be criminally liable for it. I think one important thing about that actually as well to note is Section 230 doesn't provide a bar in suits under federal criminal law. So if what you really wanted to do was hold tech companies accountable, that was what you were most concerned about, passing the federal criminal law on voter suppression makes it possible to do that. We're not motivated, again, by like imposing company liability or not imposing company liability. We really try to focus here on how can we make our society and our electoral process function better and use public policy as a driving force for that. Scott, in addition to a federal law addressing voter suppression, what are some of the top level recommendations that you would want policymakers to act on right now? The 10 recommendations we have are in these two big buckets, targeting harms rather than technologies, and then promoting learning. So for the first one, as concerns targeting those harms, We've mentioned passing a federal law on voter suppression, but another one would be promoting digital literacy programs that focus on detecting and contextualizing false content online. In addition to that, we talk about, to play on a phrase from Steve Bannon, um, <laughs> flooding the zone, right? So the reason that we're more concerned about the harms in down-ballot local elections this is just less content, good and, and bad. So local and state governments should flood the zone with good factual content as a way to sort of drown out or dilute that potentially deceptive content that's released. We call for the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, to publish guidance for political advertisers on mitigating bias in political ads, especially as it relates to using content from generative AI models. I'm reminded, having covered tech for so long, of the sort of different iterations of this conversation that we've had with each of sort of the past election cycles. If we think about after 2016, there was all this conversation around disinformation, foreign election interference, ad disclosures. We saw some of those same conversations in 2020, but they had sort of updated with the times, right? And sort of updated with some of the new technologies. Matt, you were at Facebook until 2019. So you saw sort of the 2016 cycle and the aftermath of that. Are there sort of lessons that we learned from those election cycles that we can apply this time around where AI is sort of the technology of potential concern? My guess is that the area where we can probably learn the most is not my area of expertise, but is more related to cybersecurity specifically. And how do we, how do we address foreign interference operations in a robust way? And I think 
every company, I think, has allocated additional resources to that, has developed more ways of working with other companies to share threat intelligence and address those issues with more sophistication. I also think another lesson is around the value of data-driven public policy, because I think in the post-2016 world, there was a lot of smoke and it was hard to detect the difference between smoke and fire about what various different elements were the things that we should pay most attention to. The research around misinformation has been pretty clear that the effect of individual pieces of misinformation on persuasion is relatively limited. That's not the sense I don't think that we had working in industry in early 2017 or in 2018. The idea was this is deeply, deeply problematic and we need to do everything that we can to eradicate as much of this content as possible. And I think that probably resulted in some policy measures implemented within the company and policy proposals introduced by Congress and by the by the White House that were probably not optimal and were not a an appropriate marriage of calibrating a policy intervention based on a data-driven assessment of the reality of the harm itself. And so our hope really is that we use this new technological moment to pivot, that we are active learners in developing the data and developing the understanding that will enable us to have smarter governance solutions in the long run. We were talking about experimentation, and after 2016, after 2020, it seemed like a lot of that experimentation did come from companies itself, you know, creating, for instance, databases of political ads or creating their own sort of mechanisms for counteracting misinformation with labels or, or, you know, with sort of pinning accurate information to it. It seems like maybe there are some lessons to draw upon there, but generative AI just has the potential to be such a different beast in a lot of ways, I think. I'm trying in my head not to pivot this in the direction of jawboning, but it's actually sort of hard to not do it. What you're describing is something that I really experienced on sort of a daily basis when I was at Facebook, which is there was a policy conversation around online expression that policymakers, I think, actually weren't able to effectuate what their desired outcomes of either constraining the speech that was on platforms or mandating certain speech on platforms. The First Amendment limits what policymakers can do. And so in the absence of that, they put a lot of pressure on tech companies to change their practices. And tech companies, I think in many ways, not to their credit, did shift their practices, even though the the government wouldn't have been able to effectuate changes through the policy process, either because of not being able to mobilize sufficient political support or because of the barriers that the First Amendment imposes. And um, I don't see a future without jawboning. I think Policymakers are gainfully employed in part because of their ability to use the bully pulpit. Policy teams at tech companies are gainfully employed because of their ability to navigate some of those issues. But I don't think it's a positive thing. I think it sends an incorrect signal about what the government can actually achieve. I think it often results in tech company decisions that are not optimal, that where they're trying to orient around making policymakers happy in ways that sometimes are to the detriment of users. And so my hope would be that if policymakers want to change the regulation that exists for tech companies, that they use the actual political process, the formal democratic channels to do that rather than simply job owning. That brings me to my last question perfectly. We've talked a lot about ideas, which are great and interesting, but I think we all know that the action is the harder piece of the equation, right? How do you actually turn this stuff into real policy? On the one hand, we have the Federal Election Commission looking at this issue, but you know, it's a politically divided body that doesn't make a whole lot of policy these days. Congress has put a number of solutions forward, but, you know, also obviously politically divided. And it's not sure that any of that will will come to fruition by 24. Where does that leave us in terms of actual policymaking? Can I do a rare thing here, which is actually aimed to be optimistic? I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic about 
the potential for meaningful public policy that shifts the way that harms related to AI could potentially unfold. And I think the White House's executive order is actually a really good example of that. So we were working on this report for a long time before the executive order was published. And I was surprised to see some of the things that we had developed as recommendations in the report either echoed almost identically in some ways in the executive order or that were sort of directionally the same. The executive order is focused on, I think a lot of it is focused on learning, you know, studies and research that will help inform public policy. That strikes me as a really positive thing. I don't think it should be the case that we say, if we haven't created a federal agency to regulate AI, we've failed. We haven't created a licensing regime to regulate AI, we've failed. Being in a phase where we're learning a lot and mobilizing the bureaucracy to target harms under existing law strikes me as a meaningful step forward. Scott, any final word to add to that? I would agree with Matt broadly on on most all of that, but also on, I think, on his optimism. We've only really been talking about generative AI for a year now, and I've actually been very encouraged to see the massive concern across governments about how to deal with it. And I think we sometimes forget that, you know, democracy is messy and the final form doesn't always look like the form it takes in the moment. So there are going to be a lot of bad ideas introduced and discussed and debated and hopefully rejected and some good ones. And that's that's the process working. Excellent. Well, Matt, Scott, thank you both for joining us on Politico Tech. Thanks so much for having us on. Yeah, thank you. That's all for today's Politico Tech. I'll have more to report on AI deepfakes this week. After my interview with an agency head weighing how to tackle this issue, Federal Election Commission Chair Dara Lindenbaum. Come back for that conversation. And for more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's show comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our producers are Annie Reese, Kara Tabor, and Philip Frobos. And our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. I'll see you back here tomorrow.